There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Along the banks of a lazy span of the Potomac River, well north of the turbulent Great Falls, lies White's Ferry. The grounded barge sticks out like, well, a boat out of water. It's the size of two tennis courts, and it has an even bigger history. The ferry has taken people between Maryland and Virginia for over 200 years. That's until December of 2020, when the ferry was shuttered. We will get into the how and why in a bit, trust me. But whatever the reasons are, residents in Poolsville, Maryland, are tired of waiting. Take Pastor Chuck Copeland, whose grandchildren are only a 20-minute drive away when the ferry is running, but they are nearly an hour away when it's closed. Three of my four grandkids are right across that water, man. For Sandy Wright, who owns a cafe in Poolsville, an open White's Ferry would get more customers into her tables. But for her, it's not all about revenue. I can't think of anybody who doesn't want it reopened. It's part of our identity here. A lot of Poolsville has to do with the heritage and sense of place, and White's Ferry is certainly a really important element of that. A few months back, nearly 200 people protested on the Maryland side of White's Ferry, demanding that the boat operation reopen. What do we want? Poolsville Commission President Jim Brown and Poolsville Fair Access Committee Chairperson Link Hoeing led this charge. These two White's Ferry activists, if you will, come on the show, arguing the closed ferry is holding their small town hostage. Link and Jim, welcome to the DMV Download Podcast. We're here in Poolsville. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. We yeah. appreciate you visiting Poolsville. We, that's one of our best things about Poolsville is when people come out, they recognize we've got something really cool going on. First, let's talk about Poolsville itself and what makes this place special. So Poolsville is uh, one of the most unique communities in the entire Washington, D.C. area. It's on the cusp of being very close to being to Washington, D.C., yet it's one of the most rural and accessible places in the entire DMV region. We're located in a in a unbelievable location between the Potomac and Monoxy rivers. We've got all kinds of natural highlights around us, Sugarloaf Mountain, the CNO Canal, multiple parks. And we've got a great little community that is uh, uh, only 6,000 people. We're small, but we're vibrant. And uh, we have a lot of great things going on. The key thing about Poolsville is it's right in the middle of the Ag Reserve, which I think most people in the DMV probably know about. But just to put it in context, the DMV Folks who visit here don't realize that this was actually something that was created by legislation. It's not something that just happened naturally. So you can't develop big developments out here, put major housing developments out here. It all happened because the county decided to adopt a policy to preserve open space and farmland. But it's not just about open space and farmland. And to us, the key thing is the economy and how it works in the Western County. It's totally different than the rest of the county. There are no big developments. You can't get a big investor out here to put a big uh, research lab and that kind of thing. You've got to have people visit out here. Come out and see things. Come out and spend money on our restaurants. Come out and go to local historical sites, which we have many of. Go hiking. Come back and eat at a restaurant. That's how our economy works, and that's why when we're talking about White's Ferry, it's a critical component of that 
entire economic process. And you talked about historical landmarks. Just on my drive and walk, you know, to this place where we are now, I saw so many, you know, plaques. Can you talk about the history here and how far it goes back, Link? Well, it was actually founded uh, by John Poole in, in 1760. There's actually a, a log cabin that's still preserved today in the middle of town. Uh, we have a local historic district, the Historic Medley District, which this used to be called years ago, and they've preserved that uh, so people can visit it. Uh, the town itself was incorporated in 1867, and it's fairly rare. When you look at Maryland, we don't have that many jurisdictions that are incorporated. Mm. We're one of the few, and in fact, even in Montgomery County, there aren't that many jurisdictions that have their own local government. We do, and we've had it since 1867. So the history of the town really goes back that long. But in terms of actually what's happened recently, it really didn't start growing until the, 17, uh, the 1960s and 70s, and it began to grow then. And it can't grow much more than it's already grown. It's about 5,700 people in the middle of about 12,000 people in the Ag Reserve. So we're pretty much today grown, build out as much as we can. And that's why I said visiting and getting people out here is critical to our economy. Mm. So, you know, we've kind of cast this big picture of what Poolsville is. So let's kind of focus in on that puzzle piece of White's Ferry. You know, that's missing. It's a missing puzzle piece right now. This, you know, ferry was closed down December 2020. First, what's the history of White's Ferry itself? So the CNO Canal, as you know, actually used to be a major economic commerce part of the, uh, this area, the DMV. Uh, and it really actually had a component that people don't recognize, which were 100 ferries on the Potomac River that used to go back and forth between Virginia, taking goods back and forth, and then they would sh be shipped up and down the CNO Canal. The only one that still exists today, and it's a living history example of what this area used to be, is White's Ferry. It actually started in the 1790s, so it's a historic transportation mechanism that has been around for 230 years successfully. It almost never stopped. I think during World War II, there might have been a period when it did. But other than that, it's operated successfully and continuously until 2020. What happened there? I know it's a complicated story, but Jim, can you kind of cast some light on what happened? It's an interesting piece of history because the ferry, as Link said, has operated almost continuously for a couple hundred years. But there's been several court battles along the way that have created an animosity between what were the Maryland owners of the ferry and the Virginia landing site owners. Um, in December of 2020, a cable broke, something as simple as that. But that triggered that the uh, Maryland ferry owners were no longer going to restring the, the cable across because they did not have a sound agreement with Virginia landowners to have the ferry land there. So a simple cable broke. Two parties that had already been fractured decided they weren't going to do business anymore, and the ferry stopped running in December 2020. So in other words, a cable broke and an agreement and trust broke as well between Virginia and Maryland. One that was already pretty strained at the time, <laughs> but just like the cable, strained. Uh, and when it finally did break, um, the ferry stopped running. All of us in town scrambled to try and figure out a solution. We thought it would be at worst that we had to come up with something relatively quick that would solve the problem. But here we are two years, almost five months later, the ferry's not running. We have two dug-in, intractable private owners that have not been able to reach an agreement besides, uh, despite um, efforts by a lot of people. Um, the end result is the boat's not going across the river. The efforts have failed. And we're at a point now where our town is being basically held hostage by the fact that uh, one of our main arteries 
in effect, our main street has been cut off. And let's talk about the use, right? We talked about its history, but you know, how many cars were really using this ferry? What did it mean to the commuters, basically? Well, it, there was a study actually done. Uh, the two counties got together at one point, uh, frankly, because they really couldn't find a way to get this problem solved. Uh, in April of 2021, and they finished the study in November. And the study actually looked pretty closely at both traffic and the economics of the ferry, how it works. They found that it was around 800 to possibly up to 1,200. Uh, on the weekends, it's actually more uh, cars every day use the ferry. Uh, and that sounds like to most people down county, you know, they see the beltway and the crowding on that and 800 cars, that's nothing. Right. In a town of 5,700 people with mostly local family-owned businesses. We have a few big chains, but mostly it's local family-owned businesses that rely on traffic going by their stores and dropping in and buying things. That's a really fundamental, serious problem. Some of the businesses have said 20% drop-off in traffic is what they've seen since the ferries closed. And that's a tremendous uh, disadvantage for the town. So the Reality is that now people have to go, if they want to go to Virginia, go to Dulles, and uh, which we used to do all the time very easily across the ferry, uh, you have to go up to Point of Rocks. The ferry, the study said it's a 15-minute drive or 20-minute drive. It's wrong. Additional drive. Yeah, additional drive. And the reality is it's a lot more than that because the traffic on Route 15, the main road going up from Leesburg, is just always backed up. It probably takes 45 minutes to go to Leesburg. So a lot of the traffic that we used to go to Leesburg and used to come this way just doesn't do that anymore. And a lot of it is commuters, but a lot of it is, too, people just saying, you know what, let's go over and see that brewery over in Poolsville. There's a new one called Landmade. And I'm sure people did that all the time. Local's a new restaurant here that opened up. People come here all the time. But they can't come from Virginia because it's just too far to make an incidental little trip on a, on a night and go visit something in Poolsville. You know, you also have to think about this. Uh, the ferry is was the connection point between two of the most prosperous counties in the country uh, that interchanged commerce, they interchanged tourism. Um, it, was a, it definitely was a traffic relief for 15, even though Route 15 in Virginia, even though it's a, there's a lot more cars that travel on it, but even taking off a few percent of those cars that would come through the ferry that had an immense impact on our town, positive impact on our town, having the ferry stop running has made it so that their traffic has increased. It doesn't seem like Virginia really cares about that. It means that our commuters, the people that used to go to the tech corridor in Virginia, they're no longer doing that. And so quite a few of them have moved. We've had the same thing happen where people would come to our biotech quarter from Virginia. It was an interchange of commerce, an interchange of tourism, all of it predicated on taking this beautiful, lazy boat across the river that not only saved time, but uh, how many miles did we figure up, Link, that it was? Uh, nine million, we estimate, nine million miles extra have been driven since the ferry closed. And it's probably more than that now because that was done five months five ago. Months so ago. it's probably more than that. Um, and some of those people have to go that way. They've got to commute to work, so they can't not make that trip. It's hard to imagine that because, I mean, it, we know the numbers are real, but if you, if you would say that to somebody that you could save 10 million miles of driving by taking a relic across the river that is actually quite efficient when it goes back across the river and brings uh, 24 cars back and forth, you'd say, no, nah, how's that impactful? But 10 million miles of, of road driven before this ferry hopefully gets reopened soon. That's sad. And that's, uh, that's pollutants. That's time. That's people away from their families. It's our agricultural assets that we know that Virginia people like that can't be enjoyed. Our businesses are through traffic. The impact has been uh, 
as substantial as it gets for this area. We've been hearing from two longtime Poolsville residents and White's Ferry activists, Link and Jim. Coming up after the break, we go into the details of the conflict that's really keeping White's Ferry from running. Keep it right here. So Link and Jim, at the core of this closure of White's Ferry is a dispute between two private parties. On the Virginia side, we have the Devlins, who own the historic Rockland Farm in Virginia. And on the Maryland side, we have Chuck Kuhn. These two owners have not seen eye to eye and are asking different things from each other, which makes it impossible to run a ferry spanning these two different pieces of land owned by two different people. What's really going on here and who's to blame? I don't think finger-pointing is very useful. I mean, both parties, it's a private dispute, it has been, but it's a public service. And that's why we're so frustrated, because if the private parties can't negotiate this out, we think the counties ought to have stepped in and make this thing Or the happen. states. And they, or the states, and they haven't done it. The, so the reality is the two parties have different interests, but they should have been able to negotiate them. To be fair to the Virginia landowner, Libby Devlin, she has said really since 2021, that she had three things she wanted. She wanted a 50 cent per car, and that was her proposal, but I think she would negotiate on it, but she wanted a per car fee. She wanted to have an accurate traffic count, and she wanted to make sure that she had some kind of agreement that was fairly long-term, those three things. And she actually sent a letter to both counties at one point in 2021 saying, look, basically, I can't reach an agreement with the owner on the ferry. I would go and give you a permanent easement if you guys would work, work out with me a 50 cent fee and some accurate count of cars. So that was all the way back in 2021. So what I would say to you, Luke, is that this is a political failure. <laughs> it's, it has been a political failure. There have been chances all the way along at various opportunities to get this resolved, and it hasn't been done. And it's part of what we faced when we started Fair Access Committee, because we constantly have seen that happen. We're a rural enclave in a suburban urban jurisdiction. A million people south of here and 15,000 people here. And so we are constantly ignored. Our needs are constantly not made a priority. And that's why Fair Access was started. And this is an example. I don't think the priority has been on this to get this thing resolved. And I think it could have been done. In other words, it's not necessarily the Devlin's you know, fault here or the private party's fault, but you just think politicians don't care. I think it's a combination of both the, the private parties have been given a public trust that they've uh, essentially violated. Right. We have, um, when you talk about uh, a region such as ours where through traffic, agritourism, uh, the vitality of our community are based on essentially one third of that comes from across the river and across the ferry. Those parties, while they have their own interests, they don't necessarily share that interest with us. And that's a shame because they do control that aspect of our, our lives here. When we entrust our own politicians to help us elected officials to be able to come up with a solution, so far we know there's been effort, but the end result is it's been two years, five months, and the boat still doesn't go across the river. At one point or another, someone has to take our concerns and the needs of our town seriously and come up with a solution. And, you know, I can see someone, you know, in D.C., you know, saying, why not just build a bridge? You know, boats are kind of antiquated, you know, uh, we pass barges, why not build a bridge? What's uh, kind of the response to that? Well, I'll, I'll let Link talk about the, uh, the, the advantages of not having a bridge. But what it comes down to, too, is 
Can you imagine what it will take, what it could take to be able to actually build a bridge at this day and time across that river? The, not just the actual physical cost of, being, of building the bridge, but you're talking about EPA, you're talking about uh, two states working together, which they have done in the past, but they haven't been able to do so far. Um, two states working together. The, the literal cost of construction and providing the infrastructure for the bridge, if you build a bridge, there's no place for it to join up to on this side. We thought from day one that the talk of building a bridge was a distraction, an unneeded distraction, because there is a huge difference between firing up a boat that literally could be running again in two weeks to creating the infrastructure and the, and the cost of, of creating some sort of hard structure. One of the reasons that I think politicians on this side have been concerned about discussions about a bridge is that I think they think that where they want to bring the bridge across is in the ag reserve, and that would devastate the ag reserve. Mm -hmm. And even though I know that politicians in Virginia probably don't see it this way, it is a central park for the entire DMV. We call it a playground. I mean, there's a lot of things here to see, as you saw driving up here. And there are a lot of activities, a lot of environmentally good results because of the Ag Reserve. It's a carbon sink for the entire region. So there are a lot of reasons to preserve it. And you know full well that if a bridge came across there through the Ag Reserve, it would be developed in no time. So if there is a discussion about the bridge, and we're not talking, we have said this, is, as Jim said, it, they're not the same issues, the ferry and the bridge. But if there is one, it ought to be in the context of the entire DMV transportation infrastructure. Is that a part of the discussion that they could have? I think it's valuable to have that, but it has to be in that context, not in the ferry. The ferry is not part of that discussion. And you also got to believe, no matter what anybody might think, that it's going to take, even if you did decide, I want to work on a bridge. It would be 20 years Decades. at minimum until we even got close right. to doing it. So it really doesn't have any relationship to this. Now, you know, the attractiveness of a ferry is, Jim, as you said, I think in two weeks we could have it running, right? And I think that's been the, I don't say tragedy, that's a big word, but, you know, the tragedy of it all is like, man, two weeks we could have this done, but it's been two years and five months. <laughs> you know, what keeps you all hopeful that a solution is actually, you know, possible? I mean, first of all, we're not going to give up. And we also have the longevity of 200 plus years of ferry operation. We're hopeful that we just look back on this. This was a little blip in time. This is essentially a broken cable that extended for a couple of years once the ferry gets opened up. We also have uh, optimism and we think that there's something there. There's a there there with how the ferry service can actually use this once it gets rolling again to be improved potentially to haul a few more cars, to potentially to make it have a, be a tourist asset that it's more, you know, pronounced in this area. I mean, as Link said, this is the only one of its kind, and it's certainly the only one of its kind in the D.C. area. So there's a lot of pluses that we're hoping, that we just keep hoping that, that the proper people will get involved with it and, uh, and help push a solution. We feel like if we haven't, we've driven the boat, if you'll pardon the expression on this, pushing this, uh, getting the ferry reopened for the last couple of years. We're not out of ammo yet. We want to keep, we're going to keep working on inventive solutions. It's hard to imagine that there's, that there's two private parties that at face value, but even there's, there's more development that could come out of it. They've uh, trashed a quarter million dollars a year in revenue that they just don't seem to, that the revenue part doesn't even make sense. They could be making money today on bringing the boat across the river. 
So at one point or another, we feel like reason is going to win out. We're going to keep coming up with uh, with solutions. Uh, we're going to keep pushing our, our county elected officials. We really don't have any pull on the other side. Um, and we're keep hoping that reason will come to the private parties and then or that maybe the private parties somehow disengage mm. and, and we work on solutions that way. We also have a secret sauce here, Luke, I think that people don't appreciate. And that is we got a community that is always engaged, always communicates with each other, is very close. And it's not just because it's small. It's just a different community. So we've seen that repeatedly. We, see, we had a 100-year-old school. Parts of the school were 100 years old for 30 years. They, first, they tried to close it up to the 1980s, which would have devastated our town economically. If you go over here to some of these businesses, these restaurants at lunchtime, you see it's full of students. If we didn't have those students here going to those restaurants, they would be really in trouble. Same thing with the ferry traffic. So we know that we as a community can organize and get something done. And so you saw the rally December 29th. I can guarantee you that most of the politicians didn't think that would be a big event. We had 250 people there. During a holiday week, they came out and protested. And Mark Elridge came out, uh, several council members came out, delegations for our state delegation came out, because they recognize that people do care about this and are not going to stop until they get the thing running again. So I have a lot of optimism that because of our people, we'll get it done at some point. I'm hoping sooner rather than later, honestly. But. Mm. White's Ferry sits the nexus of Virginia, Maryland, the Potomac River, Poolsville, many businesses here. History, commerce, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all there, recreation. Right. The list goes on. Lincoln Jim, thank you so much for, you know, coming on the show to explain this and also to tell us about Poolsville itself for all of us, you know, down in D.C. and uh, in Virginia. Come up and visit, man. We love having you. Thanks a lot. We appreciate it, Luke. And before we go, I should say I reached out to the Devlin family, which owns the Virginia Landing site, and to Chuck Kuhn, who owns the Maryland site and the ferry itself. You know, both said that they want White's Ferry to operate, but they still just don't see eye to eye. Mr. Kuhn says he's done trying to make this work, and he's ready to sell White's Ferry and the Maryland Landing Zone to Montgomery County. In a statement, the Devlin family did tell me that they welcome this sale from Mr. Kuhn and that they're actually willing to buy the ferry and the Maryland Landing site from him if he wants to. All in all, it's still really unclear if and when White's Ferry will open. And that'll do it for us today here on the DMV Download Podcast. If you like the show, let us know how we're doing. Give us some stars and a review on your favorite podcast platform. This show is brought to you by WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland, and 107.7 FM in Virginia. Online at WTOP.com and, of course, on the WTOP News app. Have a great week. We'll talk Wednesday.